The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Are there any great places to work anymore? How do you even define a great place to work? For the majority of people, why does work suck? And why is everybody trying to tell me how great the gig economy is? Hi, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Anya Kane of Business Insider. She's a careers reporter, and guess what? This is her first job out of college. She's been doing it for a little while, and I actually think she's lucky, A, to be a paid writer, but B, to work in a time when jobs and careers are in such great focus. What a time to be alive. So in today's episode, we talk about how America can have better conversations about fixing work. We also talk about who's responsible for that conversation. Is it HR? Is it business leaders? Is it you? We also talk about the gig economy and why everybody acts like it's the best thing since sliced bread. And finally, I talk to Anya about what her reporting is telling us about the future of work. And I ask her, hey, are the robots coming for my job? So everybody, enjoy this conversation, and I will see you at the end to wrap things up on Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm your host, Lori Rudiman. Today, I've got something special in store for you. My conversation with Anya Kane was a delight, and I really wanted to dig in and give you the very best parts, and I also wanted to share some of my ideas too. Anya Kane is a careers reporter at Business Insider. We met when she was covering the scandal at Uber, which was really just men behaving badly, and she immediately had my respect. But you might be surprised to know that despite covering jobs, careers, and employment, Anya wasn't necessarily the most experienced to begin with. I kind of stumbled into an internship at Business Insider right after graduating from the College of William and Mary. Um, And it's my first job out of college, and I'm writing about jobs and careers and employment. So it's the irony is not lost on me. I have to give a shout out to my friend Jenny Hughes, who works in the William and Mary Communications Department. It's a great place to learn the trade, so don't let Anya downplay herself too much. She's phenomenal at what she does, and her career has given her the opportunity to cover so many workplaces. I asked her if she thought there were still great places to work, and while Anya said yes, she had a very interesting take on what she calls perks companies. I think there's a lot of places that are misunderstanding what it means to be a great place to work. So those are the places that tend to throw a lot of perks at people um, that are kind of not very well thought out. And I compare them to the Lotus Eaters in the Odyssey, where they, you know, people never want to go home because they have everything they need there and they just become apathetic um, because they have their movie theaters and their amazing cafeterias and all this freed food and all these perks. Um, But at the end of the day, they're just kind of 
wasting away at these offices. Anya told me that a Gallup poll reported that nearly 70% of people aren't engaged at work. And most of them blame, you guessed it, their managers. Well, there's a good point to make about management styles, like coaching and management, that isn't the root of the problem. So Anya and I talked about the two biggest themes that make work suck. When it comes down to it, there's two reasons that work sucks for most people. Um, The first, probably a, a bigger portion of the population experience this is that it's not a good fit. Um, they're either, you're not getting paid enough. Uh, it's not an environment that is good for you. You don't really like the people you're working with, or you don't really care about the work, you know, so that in those situations, you need to look, find something that will actually work for you. And then I think the rare occurrence is when, um, It's a horrible workplace environment for everyone. It's exploitative. It's beyond competitive to the point of being cutthroat. People are getting yelled at. People are going home crying. You're working with jerks. It's a mess. So I'd say those two are the pretty, the two buckets, I would say, of why work sucks for people. Anya and I sound a little down about work. And it's not all a tire fire. There are companies out there that are good places to work. They've got it nailed from management to culture to pay. And Anya has a beautiful three-point system to explain why they are getting it right. I think a great place to work is a place that respects your time, uh, where you care about what you're doing, and um, provides benefits and perks that you actually need to have a more fulfilling life. Um, I really like the acronym CCE. It's Coworkers Compensation and Engagement. I think if you have all three of those, you're going to be feeling pretty good about where you're working, even when uh, maybe the work's not the sexiest or it's you know not the most perk-filled job in the world, but you really can say that you love the people you're working with. You're going to have a better time um, than if you have an incredible job, but you're getting screamed at constantly or everybody's, you know, it's like a Game of Thrones situation where everyone's betraying everyone else. Sometimes the world of work can feel like Game of Thrones. Leaders are challenged, characters are killed off, and badass women are on the rise. Thank goodness for me too, right? It's been too long coming and it feels like there's no turning back. Or is there? The cultural revolution behind Me Too is definitely having a moment, but Anya shares her unique and slightly cynical viewpoint of whether it's here to stay. I think uh, Me Too is an absolutely a cultural shift. Um, the news cycle is insane and attention's always going to fluctuate. Uh, but I think what it's done is put people on notice and established a model for which people, including very powerful people, are being held accountable. That doesn't mean it's going to be the end of harassment in the workplace, but we're seeing a system by which people are losing their jobs when they're behaving horribly. You know, I've been thinking more and more about personal accountability. And, you know, we often say you don't write a a handbook to say, don't take your dick out, you know? And so, (laughs) but maybe we need to start speaking like that in human resources. Maybe we need to say, don't take your dick out at work. You know, so anyway, I've been thinking a lot about that. So when I have more crystallized thoughts, I will share them with you. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that is fascinating is that none of this starts day one. You know, Matt Lauer didn't... install a scary button in his desk day one but he felt he was able to do that because of interactions that kind of told him that he was you know uh he was what's the he was not above the law yeah Yeah. above the law you know and that's that's what it has to be about it has to be about you know you're going to make a racist joke in the board meeting you're going to get slapped down you know not like 
ugh, ugh, it's just crazy though. It's so much of it is common sense. Yeah, it's common sense until you lose your mind with power. And I think that's yeah. part of it too. So I think part of the handbook should say you will never have enough power to make a racist joke. You know, exactly, like you're just gonna be right? totally specific. Otherwise, people don't pick up on it. But then your handbook becomes like this big of what you can't do instead of what you can do. So right? I'm not sure right? what the balance of empowering and enabling people and then holding them accountable is, but we need to find a better balance. Yeah. So is it true that people are losing their jobs because we've seen people in Hollywood lose their jobs, but has it extended out beyond the inner circle of Hollywood? It's a really good point. Um, the media being what it is and, and the public being what we are, we're all focused on these big names, these huge politicians, uh, media moguls, and uh, Hollywood folks. Um, in reality, this is a societal problem that stretches you know, from fast food kitchens to car plants in Michigan. This is not, this is not just a problem um, that is affecting the powerful. Uh, so I think it, I, I like to say that this should be a, a snowball that should keep rolling and keep affecting people down the line. It's a great start, um, but we need to kind of widen our scope in terms of who we are holding accountable because this is affecting everybody. And, you know, people, the, you know, the working class doesn't necessarily have a huge platform that they can go to and say, this person is a problem, you know, because they're not famous. Well, I really have been surprised by a lot of the Me Too reporting and a lot of the Me Too coverage. But I wonder, what surprises you about the movement or the coverage? Yeah, I mean, like, you have to say that the New Yorker and, and Ronan Farrell and the New York Times reporters, their coverage of Harvey Weinstein was just incredible. Um, that story's kind of, it sounds like, been brewing for years and, and they were just able to nail him, which was fantastic. And that really, I think, was a huge, um, if we say Uber was maybe the starting point of this, uh, Harvey Weinstein was maybe one of the first big names that was you know, taken down by this. Um, it's been incredible what they've been able to uncover about you know, the lengths that powerful people will go to to cover up the, this behavior and just how entrenched it is and how systemic it is and how, in, in many cases, the law and powerful PR firms, you know, they're, they're in the mix too. I mean, it, it's just crazy. It's, it's so disgusting to me. You know, I just saw Ronan Farrow speak at a conference a few days ago called Work Human, and it was an amazing conference. But what really struck me about Ronan Farrow is that he recognizes that there are two paths to change, and you have to change both in order to make a difference. The first path is personal accountability. Like, dudes need to behave better. I don't know how else to say that, right? Ronan is much more eloquent. But the second path is that these systems need to change. They've been in place for 50 years, longer than that, that powerful men have used to really take advantage of working women and protected minorities in the LGBT community. So I wonder what your thoughts are about whether or not the system is changing. Are you seeing systems adopting their attitudes now in your reporting are you optimistic or are you cynical like me? I'm very cynical. So I, I'm probably more on your side with this in terms of uh, seeing systemic change, you know, in the short term. Um, it's been great to see people like Gretchen Carlson, who you know, was formerly with Fox News, um, speaking out against the NDAs and the forced arbitration. Um, you know, the systems that people use to silence their victims. Um, 
I think we obviously have a long way to go before we're actually seeing a, a huge shift in terms of those systems. But I mean, it's great that they're they're starting. I agree. I agree. But I'm with you. I'm cynical, but I don't want to leave our uh, listeners in a pit of despair. So when we come back, Anya, we're going to talk about how we can fix work through personal accountability, through looking at work a little bit differently. And also we're going to talk about the gig economy. So everybody, we'll be right back with Let's Fix Work. You know, I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Lori Rudiman, and I'm here with Anya Kane of Business Insider, and she's a careers reporter. And we're continuing to talk about how to fix work. Are you ready to go, Anya? Good, good. Well, I want to ask a real simple question that's got a real complex answer. How can America have better conversations about fixing work? And more specifically, who's responsible for that conversation? Should that conversation be happening in HR? Should it happen with employees? Or are business leaders accountable? There's an obvious answer, but then I think there's a more realistic answer here. Um, Obviously, everyone is responsible for talking about how we can fix work. and that's HR, business leaders, employees. One thing I've noticed is that um, in my generation, among my friends, people are much more open about talking about some of this stuff. So people are comparing salaries. I mean, that would have been considered pretty rude, I think, back in the day. But I, I think it's great. You know, you're, you're seeing um, kind of this candidness when it comes to work. Um, and so I, I would say candor and, and having those conversations is how we fix work. Um, but I guess my more realistic view is that you can't trust anybody else to fix work for you. You're going to have to do that for yourself because while it would be great to think HR is always going to have your back and business leaders are going to all step up in every industry. Um, I just, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. I think that's probably fair. Your reporting has shown that it's not happened. It's not even happened in our modern generation. And in fact, your reporting probably makes you pretty cynical about what these systems are doing for the workforce, right? Certainly. I mean, one article that I interviewed you for um, about bro culture in Silicon Valley uh, kind of shows this. I think, you know, if you told, you know, some young college student, hey, you can work at a place where it's a party and everyone's having fun and, you know, it's really low key and casual. And that sounds pretty good, right? Their reality is horrible because, you know, there's a lot of harassment that comes from this. Um, It it favors young men over young women. Um, People aren't being held accountable for bad behavior in these settings. Uh, So that shows you like, you know, while it, while it kind of concept sounds like it might fix work by making it not boring, you know, completely backfires in terms of what it actually does for people. You know, you brought up an interesting point about generations and candor and conversations earlier, and there's a lot of talk 
especially among HR professionals around generational thinking. And there's a lot of reporting on how different generations view work differently. But I wonder how all generations view work the same way. Do you have any insight from your reporting? Are there key themes that everybody from every generation wants? Because I would imagine one is respect, right? Nobody wants to work in that bro culture. That's so true. And and part of me kind of is cynical and thinks that generational science is kind of a pseudoscience. But but I totally tell you we're right. we're soul sisters here. Yeah. <laughs> like what is a baby boomer? How are they, you know, 20 years in which baby boomers were born? It's insane. But anyway, um, I really think that and yeah, respect. Everybody wants respect. You know, human beings want to be respected. Um, humans want to have, you know, positive social interactions at work. Um, and I think people generally want more money, um, or at least to feel like they're being fairly compensated for sure. I think your point about talking about money is so interesting as well, because you're right. When I first started in corporate America, it was really not only rude to talk about money, but sometimes not allowed. And the rules have just been upended through social media. And so now one of the things that's really important for me, Anya, is to tell people when I can and when I frankly like them how much I'm earning because I want to make sure that everybody is, you know, raising up and everybody is earning as much as they can. So do you think that's generational or do you think technology has enabled that kind of change in our environment? I think that's such a good point. Um, Technology, uh, some of the reporting around uh, wage gaps for people. Um, and yeah, just that increase, increased awareness of, of um, you know, salary kind of brought about by things like Glassdoor or LinkedIn or, uh, you know, people posting about that stuff. Um, so yeah, it might not even be a generational thing, but something brought about by the internet, you know, kind of a byproduct of that. Oh, the internet. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Both good and bad. Well, just so everybody knows, I currently make nothing on this podcast. So the, <laughs> the benchmark is pretty low on that one. I think about other people who aren't making any money and that's a nice pivot to the gig economy because most jobs that have been created over the past eight years or longer are in that gig economy, at least if I'm reading the reporting correctly. And everybody keeps talking about the gig economy like it's a good thing. But I wonder, is it a good thing? Do you think people are winning? And I want to know who's losing. I am so excited to talk about this because you have no idea how many pitches I have cluttering my inbox uh, with, from people who want me to write something about the gig economy or someone tagged to the gig economy. And it just drives me crazy. <laughs> um, I well, mean, tell me I, more. Why does it drive, drive you crazy? Well, you know, I have to say, like, obviously the gig economy can be great for some people. Um, but when we're talking about it, I feel like we're mostly talking about people who want to be in the gig economy or the people who are like rocking it somehow. Um, I don't necessarily see it as an overall good thing, to be honest. Um, the flexibility that comes with these jobs can be great for individuals, uh, you know, people who want to make an extra buck. But, you know, the flexibility is tied to low pay in many cases. Um, and yeah, telling people to hustle and work their butts off juggling all these different jobs. It just seems like boosterism that's not really healthy for anybody. Yeah. Where's the balance when you have to hustle all the time and you can't kind of reconnect with your family or have a hobby or have other interests that's outside of work because you're afraid of missing that phone call that may pay your next mortgage or your next rent bill, right? 
I mean, your point about low wages is so insightful. Do you see that continuing as a trend in your reporting? Or do you think people can actually make money anywhere in the gig economy? Like, is there a place to earn some cash? Yeah, I think it depends on your expectations and what you're hoping to get out of it. Like if, uh, you know, becoming a part-time Uber driver can be a great move for somebody who has the time and just wants extra money. Um, But if it's more of your kind of become reliant upon that system and uh, you're juggling your kids and and other jobs, it it can be a kind of a a, a toxic situation. Um, More on the gig economy, we have these like um, advertisements in the New York City subway that's all about like, you know, sleep is for the week and like hustle, hustle, hustle. And you're just, I mean, it's like, what are you doing? You know, it's just, it doesn't reflect reality. I mean, I, I was pulling all-nighters constantly in college. And I can tell you, like, that's not a good idea. You shouldn't be encouraging people to do that in the, in, in the name of entrepreneurism and, and gigs and whatnot. Um, so I, I feel like there's kind of a disconnect in how we talk about some of these jobs and, and what the reality is for the people who are doing them. Because um, I can tell you, I mean, I wrote an article about Uber recently about uh, how drivers are uh, carrying around these basically uh, vending machines nowadays because they want to make extra money. A lot of them feel like they're not making enough money and that they're not being fairly compensated. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I wrote this thing and I was contacted by so many Uber drivers who are just furious about how they're being treated by Uber. And you, you could argue about whether you know that's justified or, or if their expectations were too high or whatnot. But the fact of the matter is like, it's not a, it's not a walk in the park for people. You know, like a lot of people are feeling very cheated. Yeah, I hear you. And I wonder if part of the problem is that we're confusing people who are entrepreneurs with people who just have no space in the traditional economy and can't find work. So we've created this thing called the gig economy. That's a big cloud. And in that cloud, we're throwing in people who want to start marketing companies, creative agencies, and then the guy who was laid off and can't find any other work. What do you think about that? That's so true. I think we need to modify some of the language around this um, to distinguish from those groups because um, while the gig economy could be a great deal for for somebody in the in the former group, that person who got laid off and is having to juggle all these different gig economy jobs, he, he's not experiencing the same thing by any means. Yeah, certainly not um, the same experience as the guy in Silicon Valley creating that bro culture. That's for sure. <laughs> well, good. Well, let's let's talk about the future of work because this is something that everybody likes to pontificate about and nobody is ever right. So why not you, right? Like, why not you give an opinion? Right. So um, what's the future of work? What does your reporting tell you? Do you see any big themes? Because I keep hearing about the robots that are coming. So are the robots coming? The robots are coming, run. <laughs> um, well, um, I'm by no means a robotics expert, so I, I'm just going to rely on my history major training and try to think of something that is kind of maybe a good comparison. And I think that's the industrial revolution. Uh, I interviewed uh, Job Case CEO Fred Goff. They're kind of like a blue collar LinkedIn. And he, I thought his take was pretty interesting. It's basically like if you went back to pre-industrial revolution England and said, hey guys, your farming jobs are going to be gone in 200 years. People are going to freak out. Those jobs were replaced though um, with factory work, mining, ultimately service economy gigs. But of course, that being said, it doesn't mean everything's okay because the industrial revolution brought with it 
you know, horrible working conditions, um, mass unemployment in the early phases, um, you know, increased urbanization, little bargaining power for your average worker. So I'm not saying it's okay that the robots are coming. I'm just saying that people will probably still have jobs. Those jobs just may change. Um, but whether or not it's a net positive in the end is kind of anyone's guess at this point. Well, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about one of the ways to offset the oncoming age of automation is through basic income. And in fact, I interviewed a guy by the name of Scott Satins for my podcast who talked about universal basic income. And I wonder if you see any sort of policy movement or policy shift. Is anybody thinking about the future of work or are we just stuck in this old model of thinking from a business perspective? It's such a great question. Um, I know Business Insider, not me personally, but we've um, interviewed a number of people who are advocating for universal basic income as well. Um, but I think just beyond that, I mean, uh, the New York Times ran an article recently about how Sweden has kind of pulled off increased automation without causing mass unemployment. Um, and they have very powerful unions there, um, you know, powerful safety net, um, you know, Sweden is not the United States. Uh, so I think, you know, we could see some countries pulling it off. Will we? I, I don't know. Um, honestly, at this rate, I'm kind of pessimistic, but... I see um, a theme here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, <laughs> I'm really fun at parties. I'm just <laughs> a ray of sunshine. <laughs> we, we have to embrace the technology, obviously, but we have to mitigate the impact we have on people. And if we can figure out how to do that policy-wise, that's awesome. But uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen any sort of policy movement um, other than people pressing for universal basic income. Um, although I don't know if that's going to happen either. Yeah, that really worries me. Well, let's end on a positive note because I feel like, you know, we have to be optimistic that work can be fixed because if we're not optimistic, then what's the point of living, right? You know, we have to be constant on, constantly focused on personal improvement. So if you can't fix work, then maybe you can fix yourself. So I'm wondering if you're reporting on any positive trends or anything that's interesting related to the world of work that you can quickly share, give us some insight on. Certainly. Um, so I interviewed uh, the CEO of DocuSign, um, Dan Springer, and he uh, had this great story about how he, when he came in and became the CEO, the HR department came to him with this idea of expanding the firm's parental leave benefits. And this is something that the employees had been advocating for. And, uh, you know, he signed off on it. Um, and it's all about, uh, you know, kind of a perk that people really wanted. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's such a kind of fresh counterpoint to say like a big tech company that's just kind of giving people three square meals a day and keeping them inside and whatnot. Uh, this is a perk that people were kind of gunning for and it helps them live a more balanced life, spend more time with their families. Um, and yeah, so that was really heartening. And I think if people, more, more um, companies can go with, uh, you know, looking at perks as something that you're the people really want and people will really get something amazing out of, you know, that would be a wonderful trend uh, in the workplace. I love it. I love it. It's actually a CEO who listened to the workers and acted on something they asked for. That's really positive. It's fantastic. And he was able to take his own experience as a working parent and say, 
you know, it would have been great when my, my sons were born, had I been, you know, more present in their, in their, you know, early years and whatnot. Um, and, and he was able to also, you know, in between his career steps, he had spent a lot of time with his sons when they were teens and whatnot. So I think it was really nice that he was able to apply that personal experience and say, yes, of course, this is something we need. That's amazing. A CEO with a heart. Thank you, DocuSign, for that. That's pretty good. (laughs) You know, Anya, it's been such a joy to talk to you. And I wonder, how can my listeners find you on the internet? Oh, certainly. So um, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, It's just Anya Kane. Uh, That's my handle. (laughs) And um, yeah, on LinkedIn, give me a follow as well. I'm always posting my articles. I'm not too crazy on social media, so it's it's all pretty much work stuff. But, uh, you know, the occasional strange history piece. I love it. I love it. And let me ask you this. I know you're a reader like I am. Are you reading anything interesting right now? Oh my gosh. Yes. It's crazy. I just finished up uh, Monsignor Quixote by Graham Greene, which is a wild ride. It's basically Graham Greene does Don Quixote um, and a newly minted Monsignor and a former communist mayor travel through Spain and have wacky adventures along the way. And it's the best thing ever lots of talk of uh, Catholicism and communism. So it's a bit on the heavy side in that regard, but it's pretty funny. I love it. Some light reading. Yes. From Anya (laughs) Kane, our resident (laughs) career reporter. Well, Anya, I'd love to have you back regularly so we can kind of check in on what you're reporting on and listen to you talk about the world of work. Are you game for that? I would love that. And thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And everybody, you can find Anya Kane on Twitter, LinkedIn, and follow her at Business Insider. And thanks again for joining us today, Anya. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anya Kane of Business Insider. I've known Anya for about a year, and I've grown to admire her as a writer and a reporter. And I think back about my early career, and I would have never been so eloquent on a podcast. She's poised, she's articulate, and she has such a bright an interesting career ahead of her. And I'm so glad I was able to introduce you to Anya Kane and her really great writing and reporting. And I also want to encourage you to connect with Anya and connect with me on Twitter, on Facebook, on any social media platform at L. Rudiman and Let's Fix Work. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative and is produced by Audra Casino and Megan Doherty. On behalf of the team here at Let's Fix Work, I want to thank you for listening, for subscribing, for rating and reviewing. Thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends and family members. And we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by subscribing to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.